we're excited to have Dr. William Blake and Chantel Barrett-Blake joining us on this episode of PodClass. Will and Chantel kicked off a webinar series last week titled Getting to the Heart of Effective Reading Instruction with Social-Emotional Learning. Their presentation was the first in a series of four webinars that will dive into this topic. The first two sessions of this series, Power Up Your Reading Instruction by Becoming Stress Resilient, Part 1 and 2, dive into strategies you can use as an educator to build your resilience to stress and set the stage for powerful classroom instruction. The last two sessions of the series, How to Reduce Student Stress to Increase Reading Performance, Part 1 and 2, will provide strategies for helping students reduce their stress levels during classroom and virtual instruction, especially struggling readers who often experience high levels of stress during reading practice and other academic tasks. If you missed the first session of this webinar series with Will and Chantel, you can watch the recording by registering for the full free series by visiting readinghorizons.com forward slash SEL to register or to view the recordings. The next webinar of the series will be next Tuesday, February 23rd at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Podcast and the webinars are sponsored by Reading Horizons, a foundational reading program based on the science of reading that can be delivered in person, virtually, or in a blended learning model with instructional software for students in K through 12th grade and adults. Visit readinghorizons.com to learn more. Today, we will be digging deeper into the topics that Will and Chantel presented in part one of the webinar. Dr. Will Blake is the founder and CEO of Meducos, a national medical management company where he specializes in combining physical, mental, emotional, and social health to help others live a balanced and healthy life. Chantel Barrett is currently the director of training and presenting at Reading Horizons. She holds a master's in the science of reading with dyslexia certification and is the mother of a child with dyslexia and dysgraphia. She earned her Cognitive Behavioral Therapy Practitioner Certificate in 2020 to help better address the emotional challenges faced by individuals with language processing difficulties. So Will and Chantel, thank you so much for joining us for this episode, and it connects so well to our topic for this season. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you very much. It's my joy to be here today. Thank you. So, Will, we're going to start with you. Could you begin by kind of explaining stress? This is one of those things that's been studied, and we can really much over-explain it, but just down to its core, stress is any threat to an organism's homeostasis, meaning they're just become unbalanced. It's something that we've developed over time evolutionarily as the flight or flight response. It's how we respond to any type of danger or threat that comes into our presence, and it's our mechanism to survive. Ultimately, stress is there for our good. It's there to let us know, hey, there's a threat and we need to address it. That is not always the case with stress that we have today because it's not just an external threat that is something that causes stress to us, but also some type of internal threat or a perceived threat that can cause us to be imbalanced in the in the world of stress. And what happens is we get this stress response. And essentially the stress response is that the threat comes into our environment and the response is an automatic physiologic response that happens. We, we, we don't even think about it. In fact, before we can even think about it, it's already happening. And it's a, it's, it's a complex neuroendocrine physiologic response that ultimately leads to some neurotransmitters and some hormones that are released, the basic of those being adrenaline and cortisol. And those chemicals have 
reactions in different parts of our body to help prepare us for this, do I need to run from this bear type of response? And so that, again, leading to hopefully our survival in, in the situation. So that's the stress response in a nutshell. This has been a year like no other, obviously. And so there is a lot of stress for teachers and parents and teachers who are also parents. So could you briefly discuss chronic stress and why it's so important to help educators and parents manage it? Yeah, it's been quite a year for not just teachers, but for everybody. And the interesting thing is that even before 2020, teachers were already kind of at a maximum stress level. I mean, there's a lot of research that shows in the years before 2020 that teachers were already at this point of burnout and it was causing significant problems in in high turnover rates and problems with their psychological and physical health. So 2020 just kind of just said, hey, you've come this far, let's just hit you with it even more and see who can survive. So as far as stress is concerned in an acute or a chronic situation, remember stress response is to bring us back into balance. And so any type of uncertainty, which this year was full of uncertainty, is going to really ramp up the stress. So when we look at acute versus chronic stress, acute stress can actually be good for us. We can actually even perform better at that. And and we get a stress response and the the stress response is mediated by the autonomic nervous system. And that's divided into two different, and I don't want to get too much into the science of it, but you've got the sympathetic nervous system, which activates the stress response. And what brings us back to recovery, that's mediated by the parasympathetic nervous system. And without those two balanced, we end up in a situation where we get a stressful situation. And if we don't return back to kind of like our normal baseline, because we don't have a healthy parasympathetic system, or because we're getting chronically exposed to repeat stressors, then we never get back to a balanced state. And what happens is that in the presence of cortisol and adrenaline, and these other stress chemicals, we start seeing that, uh, I mean, they're, they're designed to increase your blood pressure. They're designed to increase your heart rate. They're designed to do all these things to get you ready to fight or flee a scary situation. And so when you're in that situation for an extended period of time, you're going to see physical effects of these things just as a natural response to the physiologic mechanisms that those chemicals are still around. And, and that's the problem with chronic stress is that because we're constantly exposed to that physiology of being in that stress state, ultimately it will lead to psychological problems, physical problems. And we all know the things that, it, that stress causes. I mean, it's, let's, it's, it's, no, it's, not, it's no surprise or, or secret as to the things that that happens. But, but th- then we can understand why it is the case. I mean, why do we not sleep well when we're under a stressful situation? It's because when we're in this stress response, when we're, when we're stressed out, we need to be in this hyper alert, hyper aroused state. And so how are we supposed to sleep well if we're in this hyper aroused or hyper alert state? And so eventually what will happen is we'll end up getting to a point of burnout. We'll just get to a point where our body can't cope, our minds can't cope. And, and, and that's happened 
quite a bit this year is uh, we see reports of teachers uh, leaving, retiring early because of they just can't handle it anymore. And can I ask you to just help with a really practical, probably daily stressor that a lot of educators are finding this year, which is when your technology doesn't work. So you can't get on Zoom, something, you know, your internet's not working. And so obviously that ramps up stress, right? Yeah. I mean, it, again, it, it, it has to do with what the, you know, the certainty thing, you know, and when you're having to deal with some type of surprise factor that comes into your life, uh, something that hasn't, that's disrupted your routine, you know, there's a, there's a beauty to routines. And it's one of the things that we talked about in the webinar and, and that we find to be a great reliever of stress is to be able to follow routines. Because when you follow a routine, you don't have to think about, you don't have to make a decision about what to do next. It just, it's there. You can focus on the actual student rather than, oh no, I've got a, a kid who can't get on the internet. It was interesting. I watched, uh, I've got a son in kindergarten and he's being instructed at home. And it was interesting to watch some of the different teachers come on to at the very beginning of this last school year as they were coming on virtually. And one of them in particular, he's the PE teacher, right? For about 20 minutes, they did this, they attempted to do this PE. The teacher, bless his heart, he was he was an older gentleman and he didn't know how to work technology. And you could just see the stress in this guy's voice and in his face to be able to get these kids just to do PE. Like you shouldn't have to worry about those things because, and, and that was all because of disruption in, in his routine and because he didn't know what to do in those situations. Chantel, could you talk about that a little bit from an instructional perspective? When teachers are, I mean, PE, you know, different subject content areas, those kinds of things, what can teachers do and how can the programs they're using better support them and reduce stress? Yeah, well, we talked about this when COVID first hit and we did a webinar on virtual instruction, what's effective. One of the things that the research said is to try to be consistent as consistent in those routines that you had in the classroom, mirror that as much virtually as you can. And that's been further reinforced. We talked about that in this last webinar, where the routines, we know that connection to stress and that relief there is so helpful for teachers. And they, the whole routine being thrown off this year is one of those issues. But if we can maintain that routine from the times to the practices, that's gonna be helpful within that virtual setting as much as possible. And to prepare for to the reality, because we know, I think that's one of the things too, is, is where we get into stress is when we have an expectation for a specific outcome. And the reality is this year, everything that we expect or everything that we anticipate to happen changes, and it's not ever what where we land. And that creates that, you know, that, um, oh, I, I'm off balance, I'm unsure. And so I think this year also kind of a magic thing is to just expect the unexpected and prepare with plan B. So if this happens, what do I do? Because that preparation, having a plan is also one thing that can help reduce that. When you're looking at instructional routines, like programs should be able to provide a consistency in that routine, a routine that students can rest in so that they can focus on the information and not how that information is coming at them. That's a key part. And as teachers, the more that we are consistent with that routine, then those skills are going to be automatized. So kind of as Will mentioned, that we can quit focusing on what we're teaching as much as how we're teaching that and focus on the student. What does that student need? And that comes from also building 
teacher confidence. And I, and I think that's one of the key things too. And we're talking about one of the biggest stressors for teachers to implement is not feeling like they have the skill set, what's in front of them or the knowledge or skills yet, which is why training is so important in anything that we're bringing into the classroom to have training for teachers to feel confident and competent to do that, which drops that perceived difficulty, builds their self-efficacy, which reduces that stress so that they're able to implement that with confidence and not that unsurety because that that's a big part of that sufficient resources last piece sufficient resources and all of that to be able to implement they need all of those resources at their fingertips to be successful and to have that that stress um, drop down we'll talked about that it's part of that balance is being sufficiently resourced and so having access to resources that have everything that you need to teach right there is one of the biggest ways that we can support teachers in reducing that stress. And that would mean having resources you could use regardless of rather you're in person or if you're hybrid or if you're remote, because that requires different things. As Will mentioned with the PE teacher, why not just put on a video of different activities so that the kids can be doing it with the teacher? Well, you know, something so simple could have been really effective if they'd had the right resources. Exactly. Yeah, the right resources for the situation, right? Just resources in general are not necessarily helpful, but ones that are specific to the needs there. And yes, I mean, that's the thing we saw when COVID hit. There was a big awareness in education of, oh, wow, what we have will not work in this situation. And then it was a big scramble. I mean, there definitely was, while there's still such an overlying sense of stress, I did sense a difference in teachers implementing this fall as opposed to back in March and April, because now there was more of a plan. Okay, now we've got our programs up and running for virtual. It's still not ideal. Things are changing, which messes our routine and keeps the stress there. But it wasn't, they were more prepared at least to know how to handle that in those particular situations with those proper resources. Yeah, and you actually, you do see a difference in in the stress, the different stress that we're having now that we had at the beginning of the school year. Uh, the stress now seems to be like, how are we going to do this transition back into the classroom, you know, rather than we, we kind of got this virtual thing down. Now, how are we going to do the transition? And when we get back into the routine of school, when we get back into the classroom full time, you're going to actually see another increase in the amount of stress that's going on. And a lot of people might ask why, but if you understand what causes stress, it's a change in routine. And so all of the students, their routine has been, oh, I'm learning from home. I'm learning from home. And now they're going to get back in the classroom, especially the younger students that that have less experience in the classroom. They're going to have to go back into the Now we have to relearn this routine of being in the classroom. So we're not over the stress yet. And I don't don't want to do that to scare people, but I want to do that so that we prepare for it, that getting back in the classroom may be just as stressful to students as it was going virtual. After a short break, we'll be back with Chantel and Will. Podcast is brought to you by Reading Horizons, a structured literacy program for beginning readers, struggling readers, and English language learners of all ages. This season, you'll be hearing directly from educators as they share how Reading Horizons is making a difference with students during in-person, hybrid, and remote instruction to prevent learning loss. Let's hear from Maria in Texas. I began using Reading Horizon on our online virtual school over a year ago. My students have made growth in the program. Within my setting, my students are eager to share what they know. 
Reading Horizon helps readers make sense of reading and provides them with the confidence to grow. I love that this software gives me a way to monitor and assess my students in our virtual setting. For more information, visit readinghorizons.com. So you both talked about, you know, one of the ways to reduce that stress is having a routine. So could you talk a little bit more about the kinds of routines, particularly those that are stress resilient techniques? Yeah, well, routines do a few things for us. Psychologically, they give us control. That's important in situations where we may feel overwhelmed because the the feeling of overwhelm is often tied to the feeling of not being in control. So that's one of the primary advantages to having a routine is that just psychologically, we've got, okay, I'm in control, things are going my way. Whenever we're in a situation where we have to ask ourselves, what am I going to do now? Or what am I going to do next? That's when we find ourselves in a situation where it's going to cause us some stress. So routines help us to automatize actions so that performance kind of becomes this non-issue. If we've done something a thousand times, it's we like Chantel mentioned, we, we have that confidence that we can do it again. And then that's when we can focus on the student. That's when we can focus. Is this student really getting this rather than me focusing Am I teaching this correctly? We can shift the focus to engagement with the student and really seeing what they are. So that's the goal of being able to do this. So from a routine standpoint, there are some really simple things that we can do to incorporate into routines. Things from an evidence-based standpoint that we should incorporate to reduce stress would be things that are, have been shown to relieve stress. So we go back to the physiology of stress. So the stress response is mediated by this autonomic nervous system, the stress response activated by the sympathetic part of that system, the parasympathetic being the recovery part. That's the part that when it gets active, that brings us back to that baseline. So we want to be able to look at things that we add to the routine that will activate that parasympathetic nervous system. And one of the best things that we can do, one of the most studied things that we can do to activate that parasympathetic nervous system is to slow our breathing down. So breathing techniques are gold for this. They're easy to do. They're free. And they are so powerful when it comes to activating the parasympathetic nervous system to be able to bring us back into that normal or that recovered state. We'll stay pretty basic in this. There are some more advanced things that we could get into, but we'll keep it easy. But the the first thing from a breathing standpoint is that you want to do it through your diaphragm. So the diaphragm is a muscle right below the lungs that actually controls our breathing. When that muscle contracts, it actually expands your chest cavity. So when you breathe out through your tummy and you feel your tummy kind of contract in that inhalation, that's breathing with your diaphragm. Now, the reason we want to do that is because when we breathe with the diaphragm, it allows the chest cavity to be able to open even bigger. So we get more lung capacity. We get more oxygen in with every breath. And naturally what that then does is that because we get more oxygen in with each breath, we have to breathe less. We don't have to breathe as frequently. So our body naturally goes into this lower breathing rate or lower respiratory rate just by breathing through the diaphragm. So that's the first thing is breathe through the diaphragm. The second thing is to breathe through your nose. Breathing through the nose actually restricts 
the air coming in. So it kind of forces us to do that diaphragmatic breathing. So we, again, we get this slower breathing rate and that slower breathing rate has all these effects on us physiologically, including reducing our blood pressure, including reducing our heart rate. And those are the things that are going to actually help us to recover from that stressful situation. So breathing is hands down the best thing that we can do. The third part of breathing, so the first one being through the diaphragm, the second being through the nose, it leads to the third one. And the third one is to really reduce the amount that we're breathing or our breathing rate. So normally people breathe about 12 to 20 times per minute. If we can cut that in half, then our body responds in a way, our heart responds in a way that we're actually going to breathe more efficiently And that is a parasympathetic activator. So I I suggest exercises of six breaths in 60 seconds of diaphragmatic breathing through the nose. And that just 60 seconds will actually, we can measure the activation of the parasympathetic nervous system through just a 60 second breathing exercise. So breathing in slowly and then exhaling very slowly? Yeah, that, the the that's why the where the nose breathing comes in because it kind of controls the breathing. And we want to do it in a controlled method. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different techniques in that are a little bit more advanced where people talk about like you breathe in, um, whether it be box breathing or four seven eight breathing. There's a lot of different types, um, but the evidence shows that the amount that we're in in inhalation versus exhalation in the actual single breath doesn't make as much of a difference. So we, we don't want to get bogged in on what's happening. It should just be smooth, controlled, and comfortable. So a nice breath in through the nose, and then pause just for a moment, and then breathing back out, letting the abdomen relax. So we're not working on the exhalation. It's just let the muscles relax, and you naturally will just breathe out. And a couple other things you mentioned that I really wanted to hone in on because they're something that anybody could do almost anywhere. So one is looking at nature. And obviously during a class day, you can't be in nature necessarily. But um, when I was in my classroom, I had this poster that was a beautiful beach scene and it said, where's your bliss? And just by looking at that periodically actually helped me psychologically, but probably physiologically now too, just to relax And you also mentioned having a mantra. Could you talk a little bit about that as part of a routine? Yeah. So the thing with with mantras, you know, there's there's a a couple of different things that can can do it just from vocalization. So humming can help, singing can help, and having some type of a mantra can help or repeating uh, any type of repetitive. And and one of the things that that does for even from a humming standpoint or singing is it actually slows our breathing rate down. So when we're humming, we breathe less. And so there's this part of it is due to that, but also your voice box is right next to the vagus nerve, which is the major nerve that controls the parasympathetic nervous system. And so some think that the vibration of that will will activate the vagus nerve just by doing that humming or that sound. So when we do a, a mantra, a mantra is kind of a special consideration for that. A mantra would just be some type of word or phrase that we say in a repeated pattern. And the thing about that is it typically has some type of meaning to it. 
So we, once we associate some type of a meaning to either words or a phrase, like in a mantra, or to even like a token, like I, I'll use little tokens, like maybe, maybe it'd be a little rock or something that I can hold in my hand. Um, we get some psychological effects to that because our brain associates relaxation to those things. So that really resonated with me about having a mantra because, so I just want to tell a little story. I had a year as a school administrator. It was a really stressful year. Things kept happening that weren't planned, et cetera. And I don't exactly know how this happened, but I had this little phrase that I would say over and over again. And the phrase was, this too shall pass. And a friend of mine got it on a plaque so I could actually have it in my office. And when things got really stressful, just saying and thinking this too shall pass was really helpful because it wasn't permanent. It was going to go away and we we're going to deal with the next challenge. But it what it really did make a difference having that mantra. Yeah, I've had similar experiences. I, I'm an ultra marathon runner and ultra marathons are any distance of running over uh, 26 miles. So usually they're over 30, anywhere from 50 up to 100. There's even 200 mile ultra marathons. And when you get into that point where you're beyond your physical, what you think you can do physically, uh, I would use a, a, a mantra as well. And I would just repeat that. And I would repeat that, you know, minute after minute, mile after mile sometimes. And there's something about that, that not only helps us physiologically because it connects to that relaxation, but it also helps us psychologically. So that's the nice thing about the mantra is we get this kind of psychological thing. What we hear is what we believe and what we think. So it, it goes much deeper than just relaxation when it comes to mantras. So Chantel, how do all these great strategies or techniques relate to instruction? Is there a benefit to incorporating some of these into teaching routines and things that teachers can do no matter what the situation is? Absolutely. I mean, I think the first one to bridge off of, of what Will talked about with breathing, you know, that's something that we can do and, and reground ourselves and, and bring that back in in those moments because the students don't even know that we're doing. But that that benefit, because Will shared the research in the uh, webinar, that the teacher stress is very clearly you know, related and there's that correlation or that causation that the students then are, you know, stressed or their learning is affected. And so even just taking those moments of breath as teachers can help bring us back to a place where then we're more effective in our instruction and that's going to result in benefits for our students within the activities or those routines that we're doing themselves. You know, we shared on the webinars some factors of what a good routine should hold. And Will shared and talked about, you know, they need to be practical, they need to have symbolic meaning, which is one of the reasons those mantras are so powerful, service-specific function, include a physical action, include breath work, include visualization, include vocalization, and be well-practiced. When I'm thinking about the practices that we have in our instruction, for example, one process dictation, where there's all of that involved, there's physical movement, it serves a specific function, they're vocalizing within that, they're standing, they're moving, their breath is different because they're on their feet, their engagement level as a result of that is so much higher. And it's well practiced so that that whole activity is automatized for them, which then allows that learning to be even more effective that is built within that process. So yeah, processes within our instruction that are involving those elements, visualization, movement, have a specific function, hold meaning, 
that's going to create such value when we're talking instruction in general. I mean, there's correlation there, but now we know that also helps with the stress and makes that routine more effective. And that's why, isn't it, that reading programs are based on Orton-Gillingham because it is multisensory with that kinesthetic movement, all multimodal, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, regardless of what evidence we have, and we know kind of the learning styles have gone out and it's always still been for me, but it's still in, you know, it's still so valuable because it's engaging all of those aspects that we know increases engagement. And we know the benefit of that within the routine itself. So absolutely, those are valuable. And and I've seen that in the years that I've done that involving those pieces in instruction, it just seems to connect differently for students more efficiently, more effectively, and their engagement level is just so much higher. And supports building those neural pathways, right? Absolutely. Yeah, because we involve as many of those that sensory input motor output involved in language as possible. We know that's going to aid in creating those pathways and, and that mapping that is such an important part of that. Yeah, one point about that is that the multisensory approach is so important from the neuroscience standpoint. The greater number of pathways that we have in our brain, the more likely we are to be able to remember that. So when we have this multisensory approach, we're literally creating new connections in the brain through different parts of the brain. So one part of the brain is going to be the part where we see things. And one part is where we hear things. One is where even the difference between hearing something and speaking something, those are two different parts of the brain. And the more that we can engage those different parts of the brain and make connections, the more likely that the student or any of us is going to be able to learn something. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. And just a reminder that there is a series of webinars connected to this whole topic with Will and Chantel that are going to be coming up and connecting to what we're going to be talking about with students as well. Yeah, we're excited to have that connect to students. We know especially stress for students this year, but but this is just like it has been ongoing for teachers. For those students who struggle, that's even more so. So we're excited to get to talk about that. Yeah, our first episode of the webinar was focused more towards helping teachers to be able to help themselves. Um, Even though we know that there's a positive response to that in the classroom, the next webinar that Chantel and I are going to be presenting at, we will be much more specific in some of the strategies that teachers can use actually in the classroom to be able to help the students to be able to become stress resilient. And I would imagine some of those will also relate to what parents could do with their children at home. Yeah, it's something that anybody can do with anyone. And and my preference as far as when we approach anything from like a social emotional learning standpoint is that the first thing that we do is model those things. And so rather than like get into some type of curriculum with students, you know, we we know that we learn most from example or or from modeling. And so we'll talk about what teachers can do and parents can do the same thing. If a teacher is doing some type of breathing act exercise with the students, the students are going to get the benefit whether they know what's happening about that or not. You know, it's, it's really hard to explain to a seven-year-old how to build stress resilience, but they'll feel differently because that tactic is being used in their presence. And they'll, if the teacher is... You know, I don't know why we're not doing breathing exercises to start every class. Like it takes 60 seconds to do just a quick breathing or before every quiz or for before every test. And so we're going to be talking a lot about that in the next webinar that Chantel and I present in. 
Such fascinating information and so relevant to everything that's happening for teachers and parents. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. As we close, I want to share the link that you can use to register and watch the webinar recording for Will and Chantel's presentation and the additional webinars in the series one last time, readinghorizons.com forward slash SEL. Our next podcast episode will feature Carrie Drake Saunderson, who will share information from her webinar session held on February 23rd about building your stress resilience through positive psychology techniques. We hope you'll join us.